I love hearing those kids like start again and then go wait. Hold on, what? Okay, and then they say it. I love I love that the work that they put into it. And then you come up here and you forget everything you learned, and there's somebody right there to help you get through it. And it's one of my favorite things, just hearing their voices quoting the living breath of God. And so, uh, Miss Sue, children, parents, thank you for the time you invested into that. Uh, it's so encouraging and strengthening, uh, and I'm glad we get to do that uh, as a church. Um, a couple years ago, actually, it was probably about 15 years ago, I came across some of the most incredible um, posters known to man. I grew up as a kid not really liking teacher's posters. You know the ones I'm talking about? The one with the cat like hanging on by its claws and it's like, hang in there. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like that one? I mean, everybody knows that. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, there were what were called demotivators that came out. Do you guys remember these? There are a couple of them. Um, indifference. Uh, it takes 43 muscles to frown and 17 to smile, but it doesn't take any to just sit there with a dumb look on your face. I would love to see these in classrooms. Uh, despair, like get despair. It's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. <laughs> Pessimism. Every dark cloud has a silver lining, but lightning kills hundreds of people each year who are trying to find it. Problems. No matter how great and destructive your problems may seem now, remember, you're probably only seeing the tip of them. I love that. Um, regret. It hurts to admit when you make mistakes, but when they're big enough, the pain only lasts a second. Right? And then lastly, motivation. If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job. The kind robots will be doing soon. <clears throat> um, as a cynical and sarcastic individual, uh, these, speaker, these speak to my soul in a great way. Uh, maybe they don't speak to you. You're like, I don't like those at all. They're not encouraging. Well, in a world like this, is there any room for hope? Um, thankfully, the season that we have entered into goes to battle against cynicism, sarcasm, and a fatalistic view of life simply because we are offered hope. Thankfully, um, this season is not just a reminder that hope has come, but it is a reminder that hope is also on its way. Uh, at the beginning of the year, last year in January, I made this like New Year's resolution. I was going to read more fiction. And I failed at that miserably. After about a month, I had already finished. Um, but one of the books I did read was a bunch of short essays, uh, fiction stories that were put in a book about Western North Carolina or mountain living and all that stuff. And so I was reading one of them. And uh, one of the stories that, came, that really just came to mind and has, I've, I've thought about all year was the story of a, a woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And so she meets with this pastor and the pastor and her are sitting, and he's just kind of walking through final preparations. And so she says to him, I want this scripture read. Uh, I want this song sung. I want these people there. I want you to invite all these people. Uh, and the pastor says, okay, cool. Anything else? She says, no. She's about, he's about to walk out. And she says, hold on, just one, just one second, just one second. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. And the pastor's like, seriously, a fork in your right hand? What, what is that about? She said, one of my favorite things about being at church functions and gatherings and meals 
was always, when the women would come around and take the plates away, they would say, keep your fork. Because she knew some kind of a pecan pie or a chocolate pie or banana pudding or something was coming. And the ladies would always say, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. And so when I'm laying in my casket with a fork in my right hand, I want you to tell people when they say, why she got a fork in her right hand? I want you to tell them because the best is yet to come and to keep their fork. That, I don't know why that story has stuck with me as it has. None of the other stories in this short story fiction essay book stuck with me. But this one about holding on to your fork because the best is yet to come has mattered to me. Uh, thinking on eternity, thinking on hope, thinking on what is to come in the life of the believer is something you and I are tempted to forget all the time. We live in a world that likes to downplay eternity. We live in a world that likes to say, Jesus' return, don't worry about it, just live now. We live in a world that says, your best life will be now. But how many of you are like, I'm waiting on that. My best life is not right now. In fact, things are hard. Things are tough. Anxiety, worry, doubt, fear, struggle, abuse, racism, hurt, pain, you look around the world and you go, this is not the best, right? I mean, if you do, you're the one living with your head in the sand. Suffering is real. Hurt is real. Pain is real. And this is not about you or I figuring out how to rise above our thought processes. No, your pain and your struggle is real. But thankfully, we live in a season right now where the hope and the announcement of a Savior that has come reminds us of the Savior who will return. Without both of these promises, the promise that hope has come and the promise that hope is coming, we cannot live. Human beings cannot live without hope. Without the promise of a Savior, without the promise of His return, you may have a heartbeat, you may have breath in your lungs, but without hope, you are not alive. They say that is why people lose their lives all over the world when there's no clean water, when there's no access to sanitary uh, products, there's no access to health care. All of these different things, they're not what kill people. It's actually, they lose hope. And death follows. We have entered into a season that reminds us that suffering is real, but God is there in the midst of the suffering. Very real suffering was plaguing the nation at the time of Jesus' birth. Violence, uprising, uh, racism, classes, poverty, abuse of power, unbalanced power, fear, oppression. All of these things existing on the earth as the small baby enters the world. Sounds a lot like our day today, which should make us think if technology has advanced, science has advanced, all these things have advanced, yet we still struggle with the exact same things. Maybe God knew exactly what he was saying when he knew the evil that lurks in the hearts of men. See, one of the things that stays consistent in history is the evil that lurks within us. 
the ability to inflict pain and suffering on others and the ability to see it played out and to hate it and all of these things. But praise God that the scriptures declare that the other thing that stays constant is God's faithfulness to be with us in the midst of it. And one day, all of those things will be dealt with. Last week, Tim talked about the hope the faithfulness of God, the promises of God. And I, I want to encourage you, if you're wondering as Christ followers why prophecy is a big deal to us, you need to go listen last week. And Tim and his wife Angie were able to, to Tim shouting out the Old Testament prophecy and Angie shouting out the New Testament rescue promise, the, the actual fulfilling of these things. This is what gives us hope is that God is faithful to himself and his promise is going nowhere. His promise is standing firm and you and I today still gain strength from the same faithful promises of God then, today. But more often than not, God's most clear pictures of hope were announced not when things were good, but when things were tough, when things were hard. Often Israel was suffering the consequences of her sin and turning away from God. But God would not let them despair to death. He would announce that hope was coming. Israel was notorious for putting her hope in her military strength, looking around at other nations and saying, we want to be like them. We trust them to help us when we have problems. Let's form alliances. And God was like, stop doing that. They put their trust and their hope in their money when they had wealth. And God would say, stop doing that. And over and over and over, God would help people know you cannot hope in the things of this world. Over and over, God would say things like in Isaiah 44, verse 9, How foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God an idol that cannot help him one bit? See, hoping alone in and on God separated the nation of Israel from the rest of the world. It was something that marked them. It was to be something that stood out so differently from the ones around them that their hope wasn't in horses or chariots or money or military or their own strength or their own wisdom. Their hope was laid on God. It was to trust that He is able to do what He says be who he says he's going to be, and that is the rescuer. But we are not talking about the hope that we use in our everyday language. See, there, there are two ways that we typically approach the word hope, and that first way is when you're doing a thousand miles an hour through a school zone, and you see a cop. You know that feeling. A lot of you do know that feeling, where you're like, oh, uh, and you just, you just drive looking in your rearview mirror. That's what you do. You're like, I hope he doesn't pull me over. I hope he doesn't pull me over. It's like this got this hint of fear behind it, like this unknown, like this, this I hope so. Like it's with this question mark, your, your voice goes up, you know. That's way, the way we talk about hope. Well, I hope so. And it's almost as this fatalistic point of view. It's like I'm saying this, but as I'm saying it, I really don't think it's going to happen. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about here. In the Old Testament, the word hope was this combination of two words, and, and that first word was to, to hope for or to, to want to expect something, and then it was combined with this idea of a confidence. 
So to expect with confidence. Like it's this, this whole other way of approaching hope. It's not this question mark. And the best way that I can describe it would be in this way. We're two ways. He will or he will. He will or he will. It's amazing what changes in the way we approach God's promises with either a question mark or a period at the end of the statement. He will or he will. And how you look at those promises of God, it matters when it comes to hope. The psalmist would put it this way, Psalm 71, O Lord, you alone are my hope. I've trusted you, O Lord, from childhood. Yes, you have been with me from birth. From my mother's womb, you have cared for me. No wonder I am always praising you. Because of God's past faithfulness, the psalmist has every reason to hope. Israel had every reason to hope in God's future promise for a rescuer because he had, be, he had come good on his promises in the past. In Exodus chapter 6, God makes a declaration to, the, to Moses, to the people of Israel, and this is the promise. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. And I reaffirmed... My covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with my powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. And because of this scripture, you and I know that as we continue reading, God did rescue. He did come good on his promise. He did make good on his promise. So Israel had every reason to look to the past to go, wait, God is faithful. When he makes a declaration, it may not come about when I want it to or how I want it to, but he is going to be faithful to himself. His words matter to him. And because of this scripture, we also know that God told the Israelites who walked this firsthand that they were supposed to keep it to themselves, right? No. He said, you're supposed to tell the next generation. You're supposed to tell the children who weren't here to experience this rescue what God did. Just because you and I weren't there to experience it does not mean it changes the faithfulness of God. Does not mean that it changes the story. Does not mean that it changes his promise. We are people who have been handed this story from eyewitnesses, from people who were there, and it does not negate its reality because we did not see it first. This is why God put it on the hearts of the parents and the adults who did to tell the next generation and to live their lives based on that. The way that they were to live and the things that they were to speak about would change how the next generation saw God. They would see God as a God who keeps his promises because he kept, their prom he kept his promises to their parents. 
They were a people who were to be marked by hope because of what God had done in the past. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah would often open up his prayers with, O Lord, the hope of Israel. Like, we may, we're in a mess right now. We're in a mess of things. We got people and nations from all over the place trying to come in here and take our stuff and take our things and take our people and rule over us and trying to crush us. O Lord, the hope of Israel. One of the most fascinating stories to me in the story of of Jeremiah, and you can go through and read it, um, but Jeremiah is actually making this declaration while Israel is under attack from uh, the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is like, uh, dude, you're going to get taken over and you're going to go and be brought before the Babylonian empire. And what's interesting about it is the king of Judah puts Jeremiah in prison because he's sick of hearing these things. He's sick of hearing that God's going to hand them over to the Babylonians because of their idol worship and their chasing of little gods and foreign gods and all of these things. And so he's in prison by one of his own because they don't like hearing what's coming. And while Jeremiah is in prison, the Lord gives Jeremiah this vision for, hey, I'm going to, you've got a cousin who's got some land. I want you to buy this land from your cousin. You've got a legal right to do this thing. And Jeremiah's like, what? This is such a strange request. And sure enough, just like clockwork, Jeremiah's cousin shows up to Jeremiah and says, I've got this land I want you to buy. And it's funny because it's like Jeremiah says, I knew the Lord was up to something after, you know, it's in, in Jason's translation. But that's what he says. He says, the Lord is doing something. And what's unique about this picture story in Jeremiah's life is this is why Jeremiah did this. God tells him in verse 15 of chapter 32, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, someday people will again own property here in this land and will buy and sell houses and vineyards and fields. Though they were suffering and separated now because of their sin, Because of rebellion, God would bring that to an end. He would bring them home. They would know what freedom looks like someday. Though it was not happening then, he was saying, I want you to know that someday you'll be able to purchase land again. You'll live free again. It may not be now, but it is coming. And we see this most clearly demonstrated in Christ's birth For some reason, God chose a meek, humble place in the midst of farm animals, shepherds, among the poor, and all sorts of chaos to make good on his promise and send a rescuer in Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Why then? I don't know. Why, why then? I don't know. But all I do know is that in God's timetable, it was just the right time. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you what was going on, but all I can tell you is what the scripture says, at just the right time. And what was our situation? Was it, we're all gravy? No. Well, we were utterly helpless at just the right time. In Israel, maybe even now, 
You're saying we live in a broken world and this is tough. You're saying suffering, disappointment is not easy. People are letting us down. Maybe you've trusted some people and they have failed you. Maybe you are experiencing many, 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 many sleepless nights. But the power of this season that we walk into is that God said he would provide us a rescuer and he has been good on that word, which points us to a future hope. Because we know that God has been faithful at this time, we can know and hope on him for future time. Human beings cannot function without hope. Human beings cannot function on hoping on things of this world that we can see. Because the things that we can see, they're gone. The things that we can see don't stay up to the test. The things that we can see, we just can't get a grip on. And so we walk without hope. But the power of this season is found in this small, simple manger. But man, does the manger point to a throne. The manger points to a king. The manger points to the return of Christ. I think we like to get excited about this season because we see presents and lights and trees and a baby. But the truth is, the Christ follower's heart goes, hold up! The baby's cool, lights are cool, but a king is returning. Like, that is what I want to know, and I want to experience, and I want to see. I want to know that. You see, the world missed the manger. Many missed the manger. No one will miss the king. And for the Christ follower, it stirs great hope in us and great confidence in us because he was faithful with his word to provide a rescuer, he will be faithful to return. In his letter to a group of Christian exiles, Peter, who was probably feeling the weight of the Roman emperor Nero and the persecution that the church was starting to experience, like severe persecution. When Nero was the emperor, um, there was a, a Roman historian whose name is Tacitus, and he was a guy who recorded all this Roman history. And in this midst of it, he is not a Christian uh, historian. He is, from, he is a secular historian, and he records this great fire that happened in Rome. And many believe that Nero said it himself, that in order to get the attention off of himself, he pointed it to Christians and was like, hey, they probably did something. And so they begin this severe persecution on these Christians. Christ followers, these, these followers of the way. And I'm not talking about light stuff. I'm talking about Christians having animal skins thrown and wrapped on them and then released into a coliseum and hunted for sport. I'm talking about crucifixions among Christ followers. I'm talking about being put on a, on a pole and then having your body lit on fire so that the gardens of the Romans could walk through and be lit. That's the kind of persecution that was, being, uh, that was going on at the time that these believers would read this word. And within the text of the letter that is given to these who are being severely persecuted, we see these words. Verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. 
Verse 21, through Christ you have come to trust God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. So Peter is pointing back to things that they have known from their past. What God has done and has been faithful to in the past is reason that they can have hope in the persecution that they are walking through, the suffering that they are walking through, the hurt, the abuse, you name it, all of it. They can walk with hope, not because of their circumstances, but because of the God over all circumstances. That is how they are able to walk. And when in the midst of being reminded of God's past faithfulness, Peter hits us with these words, For God called you to do good Even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. To know that the the suffering that they might be walking through now will actually fail to compare to the eternal glory that is to come. And the reason they know it's coming is because he sent his son. The reason they know God will keep good on his promise for the future and his return is because he was faithful in the past. Something that has happened in history that really happened, really happened on this earth in a small place on the other side of the planet has affected our future. This is part of the good news. And this actually leads to being accused of having hope. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15. Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? It would make sense that no one would, but for some reason, <laughs> that is the lot for those who are called by Christ. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Some translations say give a defense for the hope you have in your life. Like you are going to be accused of having something wrong with you. What's the deal? How can you have hope when everything is going to hell in a handbasket right now? I'll tell you why. Because God was faithful to keep his promise to send a savior. And that means that at his return, he will make all things new. That's why I can have hope. But you ain't got nothing in your bank account. God didn't say I'd have a full bank account. You don't have any food in your cupboards. He didn't say that all of those things would be full all the time. But what he did say is he sent a rescuer and that that rescuer would be born walk sinless, die a sinner's death, raise from the dead to return as king. That's where my hope is. And this season is a reminder that Jesus did not just come as a baby, but that he will return as king. The Christian's hope doesn't change from Jesus in a manger to, oh, it'll get better. 
The Christian's hope is not things will get better. The Christian's hope is that our God reigns and that he is making all things new. That is our hope. Our hope is not that, hey, things are going to get better. They're going to pick up. How, how long have you heard that? And some of you are like, I don't know when things are going to get better. And honestly, as your pastor, I want to tell you that on this side of eternity, I cannot promise you that the suffering will end. But I can tell you that we have a king who reigns who will make all things new. And as Christ followers, we sit with each other, and this is our hope. Christ is our hope. Hope is something that marks the Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, often quoted as the love chapter, but we see what Paul is getting to when he says, now we see things imperfectly. You ever felt that? Like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. Not now, then. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Like, I think some of us will jump right over that to what we get to see out of it, but the fact that God would know us completely and still send a rescuer, that should knock us on our feet, off of our feet. That should knock us back. That should, whoa, you know me completely. That is both terrifying and super exciting at the same time. To know that a rescuer has come, but that a king is returning. Our hope doesn't shift from Jesus to something else after the manger. Our hope remains Jesus. At his return, we will see with our eyes the one whom we have believed. We will experience by sight what we have only believed by faith. Our hope remains Jesus. The final words of the book of Revelation. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. You and I don't hope in created things. Our hope, our confident expectation is in the creator of all things. As we close our time together this morning, um, Ellie usually, before she started kindergarten and preschool, would come into my office while I'd be working, and um, she'd be like, Dad, can we play? And I would say, sweetie, I, I've, got, I've got office hours. I know Daddy's at home, but I've got to work, and so I'm writing a sermon right now. We can play. Give me an hour, or we'll play. And she'd run off, skip out of the room, but then she would start coming into my office and like, I would look over and there'd be a toy sitting on my desk. And I'm like, Elliot, we've, we've only got, I, I need a little bit more time. I'm not done. I know I'm home and I know that you have easy access to daddy, but I got to get some work done. I'd look over and there'd be another little toy just show up on the table. I'm like, I get it. Okay. I, I know. She'd set another toy in the room, just set it on. I mean, and like there would be lots of toys lined up. And I'd be like, Ellie, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm just getting ready. <laughs> through this season of Advent, God wants us to know through this first coming as a baby in a manger, how much we have to look forward to. How much we have to get ready for. And thankfully, 
In Christ, God has done everything to help us prepare. And it is a gift. This season is about gift giving. Well, this season is about the gift giver. And that is the God of all creation saw fit to give us the greatest gift. And that is preparing us for what we were made for. Life with him here, life with him in eternity. The manger points to the returning king. And I hope that as we celebrate with these children this morning, as they begin to prepare and get the costumes on and you get anxious and you're waiting to see them walk around and look cute and you're getting your cameras ready, that you will feel the weight of glory, that you will feel the weight of the returning king announcing all things new. You see, your all-in budget really isn't going to matter in eternity <laughs> because we have a generous God. Your all-in budget ain't going to mean a thing because he is generous. Greatest fixer-upper ever, episode ever, <laughs> to be truthful. So as we prepare and Miss Sue and the kids come, I hope that anticipation of Christ's return will mark you as much as his coming. It's in this, it's in this season that we're reminded of.